Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, well this week, no one dies for a change. But we do have someone who wanted us to believe he was dead. And we also have pizza. References tonight are the Hartford Current, the Boston Globe, Connecticut Post, Yelp.com, ColumbiaCityPaper.com, InsuranceJournal.com, WoeBurnOnline.com, Radaris.com, ForensicFilesNow.com, and court records. Now, before we start, uh, ForensicFilesNow.com. If you're really into that series, go and check out that website. I, th- I don't know the name of the lady that runs it, Elizabeth maybe, but uh, it's got heaps of information on there. So uh, go and have a look at that. Okay, so this week we go to 74 Old Hawleyville Road, Bethel, Connecticut. And it's 1998. We've had a few in Connecticut, haven't we? And a couple in Bethel. It's here that 34-year-old Madison Rutherford and his 54-year-old wife, L. Rennie Jefferson, they live quite the high life. Now, apparently Rennie met Rutherford when he was a 16-year-old lifeguard and she was a 36-year-old spiritual astrologer. And she gets pissed off if you call her a fortune teller. From what I gather, Rennie was a bit of a mother figure at the start, pushing Rutherford to make serious money, and he was able to do that as their relationship grew. Rennie and Rutherford had one thing in common, it's that they were animal lovers with horses, cats, exotic dogs and chickens living with them on this large five-acre property. At one stage, Rutherford... He shot and killed a dog that had attacked his chickens. Now, being an animal lover, you think, why would he do that? But he saw these chickens as his children. Now, Madison Rutherford wasn't his birth name. He was born John Patrick Sankey, son of a one-time New York City policeman and was probably born in New York as well. From newspaper clippings, I couldn't find anything about his early life or education, but he did work, or may have worked, for TRW, a huge credit reporting agency now known as Experian. So, for those of you in the US of A, you can request one free credit report from these agencies, and that's just an FYI. During the 80s or early 90s, Rutherford and Rennie reckon they managed his family's investment portfolio as well, claiming to earn himself $245,000 per year. Now, that's good money. That's good money now. And that would have been spectacular money 30-odd years ago. Now, Rutherford started using that name instead of John Sankey in 1987. Around the same time, he obtained a series of bank loans issued on the strength of his purported income. Now, he used fake tax return slips that he made on his own home computer as proof of his income. That brings me to remember way back in the day the Apple Apple ads on TV when somebody says they see this crappy little 
graph or something. And they said, oh, where'd you get that from? Oh, I made it on my computer. Anyway, the fact that Rutherford never had ever filed a tax return in his life, you can see how this is really dodgy. Now, in 1990, he filed for bankruptcy and won a settlement that discharged debt associated with these loans. Now, get this. Even though he got the loans under the name Madison Rutherford, he hadn't legally changed his name from John Sankey. Now, no one picked this up when he went for the loans or got the loans or when he filed for bankruptcy. Now, this really shows you how lax banks have been in the past giving out money. In 1996, he did change his name legally to Madison Rutherford and obtained a passport in that name as well. And him and Rennie, they're taking holidays all around the world. Now, Rutherford then obtained four life insurance policies from CNA Insurance, totaling $3 million in coverage. In January of 1988, sorry, he obtained a further $4 million in life insurance from Federal Kemper Life Insurance Company. Now, he was supposed to replace the existing $3 million policies with this new $4 million policies. Federal Kemper had company rules that prohibited issuing a $4 million policy to someone already well covered. But Rutherford didn't cancel the first insurance policy. And again, No one checked. So now he's covered for $7 million. Okay, so that's Madison Rutherford and his wife, Rennie. But there's one other important character in this saga, and that's 69-year-old. Now, (laughs) her name is Brigida Beck. That's how they said it on Forensic Files, right? It's actually spelled exactly the same as Bridget. So I will say Brigida because if I say Bridget, someone's going to come at me. So Brigitte had what was described as a relatively sheltered life. She helped raise her siblings in Germany and worked for her uncle, who was a pharmacist. Now, at 24 years old, she went to America working as a nanny. She then started working for a massage and medical clinic in Stamford, owned by a German uh, couple, the Grafs. It was called Graf Clinic. She lived and worked with them for decades until they died. And she inherited everything. Houses, businesses, stocks and bonds. Now, Brigitte moved the Graf Clinic from Stanford to Norwalk, where it became extremely successful. Now, it's here that she would meet Rinnie at the massage clinic. And they ended up becoming good friends. Now, Rinnie... She persuaded Brigitte to let Rutherford handle her investments. Now, Brigitte, she would go on to say, I was comfortable with him. I felt I was on safe ground. Whatever he advised me to do, I went along. I trusted him. Well, Brigitte trusted him, all right. She transferred all her investment funds to him, and that was around $300,000 worth. Then he convinced her to give him power of attorney over everything. Now, as she was starting to get on in age, she thought this would be the right thing to do. These people she trusts, in case she gets incapacitated or whatever, they're going to take care of her. But the thing, thing is, she wasn't incapacitated at all when she did this. She just got conned, basically. 
In fact, she trusted him so much, she didn't even ask him about how her investments were going or even read the statements that were sent to her in the mail. But she should have because he was losing money on the stock market extremely fast and he'd reached a point where it was almost impossible to recoup his clients and his own money. All right, so I'm I'm sure you see a few red flags here. We got this bloke Rutherford who works for a credit rating agency, so he learns all the ins and outs of how this credit thing works. He gets loans and then he declares bankruptcy. He doesn't have to pay it back. He changes his name, get a passport, goes on holidays with his wife Rennie, targets Brigitte Beck, who's come into a load of money and assets that she really she's just got no idea how to manage. Rutherford gets Brigitte not only to hand over all her spare cash to invest, but he convinces her to give him power of attorney over her total estate. Then, as Rutherford and Rennie are big dog lovers, especially exotic dogs, he organises a trip to Mexico in the second week of July 1998. Now, this is about six months after getting that last insurance policy, the $4 million one. Now, on this trip, he asked if his friend, retired Connecticut State Police Officer Thomas Pietrini, if he wanted to come along for the ride. Now, Thomas went, hey, I'm doing nothing. Let's go to Mexico. Now, the plan was to stop at Texas to sell a rare Brazilian dog Rutherford and Rinnie owned and then go on to Mexico to buy another rare dog and bring back. Now, I don't know how they got from Bethel to Texas or from Texas to the Sheraton Ambassador Hotel in Monterey, Mexico, but what I do know is that on July the 10th, Rutherford rented a Chevy Suburban from Centenario Rent-A-Car and that was next to the hotel. Now, after midnight that night, Rutherford went for a drive alone. But then tragedy struck. The Suburban was seen on fire in a ditch along the Monterey-Renosa freeway. By the time emergency services were on the scene, the car was completely gutted. There were a few bones in the front of the cabin, including some teeth, a medical necklace that had the chain unclasped, a wristwatch which had the inscription on it, and a partially burnt Rockport shoe. The medical necklace had inscribed Penicillin M. Rutherford, and the watch was inscribed to Madison, Love Rennie. Mexican police theorised that the car must have veered off the road, crashed and burst into flames. Also, the occupant was identified as Madison Rutherford because of the ID found on the scene and from the rental agreement on the Suburban. It looks like even though the police were happy to write it off as an accidental death, their forensic specialists weren't so sure. Now, his death ended up being listed as total carbonisation. Jeez, what a way to go. So, Rinnie, once she got the news, she was devastated. Family came to console her and also her best best friend, Brigida. Brigida didn't even think about how this would affect her investments at the time. She just wanted to help Rinnie get through her loss. Now, Rinnie ended up taking Brigitte aside while there were grieving friends and relatives in her house and she told Brigitte that Rutherford wasn't really dead. He was in hiding from organised crime gangs after he he refused to launder drug money for them. Now, Rinnie told her not to tell anyone. Shh. 
Okay, so Rennie is rubbing her hands knowing she's got $7 million coming her way. But the insurance company, <laughs> they were pretty hesitant and they wanted proof of death. Well, guess what? Rennie, she produces a tooth of Madison's that she just happened to know he had kept after undergoing a dental procedure and that could obviously be matched using DNA to the teeth that were found in the car wreck. I mean, that's fucking convenient. So they do a DNA analysis on the tooth from the car wreck and it does match the tooth Rennie supplied them. Give me the money. <laughs> Give me the bag, she must have thought. But the Federal Kemper Life Assurance Company, they just still weren't convinced. They got their own forensic experts to analyse the bones from the car wreck and they got a private eye, Frank Rudowitz, to search for a living Madison Rutherford. Well, the forensic expert found that the type of teeth were matched up but they were from a non-Caucasian with bad dental health and that the part of the skull that was found belonged to not a 34-year-old but more likely a 50- to 60-year-old person. Also, the bit of skull that was found wasn't burnt much at all. Now, this suggested that the head was on the floor when the fire started, protected from the hottest part of the fire. So, you can imagine, with with the head on the floor and the feet up in the air, it's not exactly how a body would end up after just driving into a ditch. Also, it was found that the fire was started with an accelerant. So, the body in the car wasn't Madison Rutherford, and that scene was obviously staged. Okay, so, if the body in the burnout wreck isn't Rutherford, where the fuck is he? Witnesses in Mexico remember seeing Rutherford driving the Suburban the night it burst into flames, and they remarked that it had a push bike loaded onto the tailgate. Now, no bike was found in the wreckage. Brigadier still believed Rutherford was in hiding, and then one day, he turns up to her house. He also spun of the line that the FBI had staged his death again because organised crime syndicates were trying to kill him because he refused to handle their drug money. Now, Brigida allowed him to stay low at her house for a couple of weeks and Rutherford was able to get another $80,000 out of her and a further $12,524 to, in inverted quotes, air quotes here, manage. The 80000 was from a windfall from a limited partnership the Grafts had been involved in and the 12000 odd was from an insurance settlement check. Now, he told her that her original investments were safe, they're safe, Brigitte, but tied up in probate court because he had co-mingled his money with hers. Rutherford and Rennie also conned her into opening a check account under the name B. Beck & Associates. They would use this deposit to, they would use this bank account to deposit payroll checks for, for a Thomas Hamilton and Rennie would withdraw the money for herself. I mean, Jesus. When Rutherford got hold of Beck's money, he just disappeared. Then the FBI turned up to her house to ask questions about Rutherford and she just said, hey, I, I don't know. I haven't seen him at all. She's still thinking he's in hiding. Now, Frank, the private eye, was still looking for an alive Madison Rutherford. Then along the monterey Reynosa freeway, where the Suburban was found in a ditch, a backpack containing bloody clothes was found after an anonymous phone tip-off. 
A DNA analysis would find the blood belonged to Madison Rutherford. This time, it was matched to his parents' DNA, not the DNA extracted from the old man's tooth. Now, at this time, Rennie was trying to get money from the insurance companies. Now, she ended up settling out of the $7 million on about $30,000 combined from both companies. They, they just would not give her the full amount. Now, even though they hadn't found an alive Rutherford, they just didn't believe he was dead. And Rennie settled on just thirty grand from that combined total of $7 million. Now, I'm thinking it was, spo- it was probably cheaper for the insurance companies to settle for a negligible amount rather than spend heaps of endless money on legal fees. 30 grand wouldn't have gone far. 30 grand, she accepted it. They just, okay, let's get her out of here. Investigation showed that Rutherford and Rennie had an address at South Stowe Street, Vermont. Now, that was a real address. Thing is, they didn't own the property, but they'd registered cars there. Then Frank, the private eye, gets a call from an associate in Boston. This guy had called Frank the private eye to ask about a background check he was doing on a guy called Thomas Hamilton. The reason he was calling P.I. Frank was because the check had turned up a link between Hamilton and Madison T. Rutherford. And he remembered Frank was looking for this dude. Now this background check was for a company called Double Decker Studios that was going to internally promote one of its employees to chief financial officer. Frank sent some guys to Boston to get photos of this Hamilton do and suss out where he worked. After checking the photos, it was clear that Thomas Hamilton was actually Madison Rutherford. Now, Frank handed over his files to the FBI and they arrested Hamilton, a.k.a. Rutherford, a.k.a. John Sankey, on the 7th of November 2000. They held him on a wire fraud charge after checking his fingerprints on file to confirm he was Madison Rutherford. A search of his place uncovered a book on how to change his identity and how to make disguises, plus maps of Mexico. How many times do they go into these people's places and they always find some book on how to change your identity, how to make disguises? Jesus. Also, there was this to-do list for 1999-2000. Now, one of the items was collect $7 million. Here is a taped phone call between Rutherford and Rennie from when he was first taken into custody. This call may be recorded or monitored. The first thing is we have to keep you from getting picked up for anything they think you did which you didn't. Okay? You gotta go somewhere where they don't know the address. They'll be for you tomorrow morning. They'll get a they'll get an arrest warrant by then. What happens to everything? I don't know. Let's do this piece by piece. I'm um, I know. But we've gotta get you out of here. Rennie Jefferson was then unable to be contacted at the 74 Old Hawleyville Road Bethel residence as she'd done a runner as per Rutherford's instructions. But when they finally caught up with Rennie, she wasn't talking. Then when the FBI showed her proof that Rutherford had been cheating on her the whole time he was in Boston, she was pissed off and she spilled the beans on him. Now, as the investigations continued it would be found that the accounts of poor old Brigitte Beck were being used to launder money. Now, this sucked her into the whole shit fight. At first, the FBI thought she was a willing participant with Rennie and Rutherford. Well, I guess she was willing in giving Rutherford power of attorney and opening those dodgy bank accounts, 
but she thought it was all above board, not a dodgy, fraudulent scam. It's at this time that she realised all her money was gone. Now, there was a mortgage out on her home, and she had $27 in her savings account and $500 in her checking account. Now, she would have the bank foreclose on her house, but friends would take her in and give her assistance. Jeez, she inherited all that money, the assets, the properties. It was close to a million dollars or so, and she lost everything to a scammer. Rutherford and Rennie would tell the FBI that it was the other person's fault and that they were just an innocent party. With Rutherford, well, he ended up going to trial. He got five years for fraud. And Rennie, she got 18 months and three years with three years probation. And that was probably because she spilled the beans on her hubby. Now, Rutherford couldn't be charged over embezzling Brigitte's money as she had given him power of attorney. Now, I guess the good thing is she didn't go down for being an accessory to all that money laundry. Well, there you go. Now, there is more, but before we get into that, Rutherford and Rennie, they would end up divorcing, as you can imagine. As you can imagine, they're not really getting on that well. So you may be thinking... Who was the body in the car if it wasn't Rutherford? Well, no one knows. But it looks like before he staged his fake death, Rutherford had made a few recon missions down to Mexico to find a suitable body. Now, in the Forensic Files episode, it shows him digging up a coffin at the cemetery, but it isn't what was most likely to have happened. He probably found an old burial crypt, broke in and selected a body from there. It would have been a better chance of being dry and much easier to open a coffee to, coffin to steal a body than to dig one up and have to put all the soil back in place. The thing is, when he staged the body, rather than put it behind the wheel in the normal position, he put it in so the head was down around the pedal area against the floor with the feet sticking up in the air. Now, why he did this, I have no idea, but by doing it, the scalp was protected from this intense heat of the fire and remained intact, whereas most of the body was incinerated. Oh, yeah, and of course, before he lit the match, he pulled a tooth from the corpse so he could give that to his wife in case they needed a DNA sample to prove the body was here. His is pretty sick, eh? Also, he put his medical bracelet and watch into the car after the main fire had burnt down. And they were were hardly damaged at all. The car was totally destroyed. And as mentioned, the body was almost incinerated to ashes. So this looked real sus. Now, from what I can see, he took that ex-state trooper down with him so he would have someone to vouch that he was actually down in Mexico and who could help raise the alarm quickly once the car was reported to be found burnt out. What I can't work out is how he rode his push bike from the burning car and how he got back over the border to the US. I found absolutely no articles explaining this. And then the bloody clothes turn up in that backpack, that bag, a year later. Did he have help? Surely Rennie didn't do it. I mean, she was being watched. Is the border, this is to all the people at USA, is the border really that easy to come and go undetected? Now, Rennie Jefferson, well, at 36, I mean, when she was 36 years old, she wasn't 36 at this stage, she was 50-odd. She groomed the 16-year-old Rutherford 
and they ended up being a very toxic couple. Toxic to others at first, and then when the shit hit the fan, they were blaming each other for the whole scam. Now, she died alone in 2020, aged 76. Now, we, we keep going. This is the pizza bit. Rutherford, he opened a pizza joint called Pop's New York Pizza at 707 Harden Street, Columbia, South Carolina. We've got some Yelp reviews here, all right? I don't think it was the nicest place to get pizza. This is from Julia on the fifth, uh, the 20th of the 5th. That is the 20th of May, people. 2011. And she says, This place is terrible. Do not go. I made the mistake of using the restroom before our food was ready and it was like something out of a horror movie. There was a hole in the door, the toilet looked like it had never been cleaned and the toilet paper was on the floor with flies buzzing around it. Oh my God, oh yeah, and the pizza kind of sucks. Mine had nasty cold canned mushrooms on it. Just don't. And then there was a bar next door reopened. You can Google this if you do Google it. Go back in time a bit so that you can actually see both these uh, both these businesses side by side. So it was a bar called Bay Sport Bar. That's at 7-Eleven, Harden Street, Columbia. And like I said, right next door to the pizza joint. And just Google Street View it, okay? A Yelp review from there. This is from Rachel Hecking, March 10, 2011. Been here 50 plus times. Grab some napkins from the bar before going in the bathroom. You won't regret it. So from these comments, it seems like he was also, you can just go through all the Yelp reviews, right? It seems like he was rarely present at the pizza place or the bar. Now, one of his ex-staff said he did whatever he wanted and she actually admired him a bit for that. He was also accused of stealing all the staff's tips. Now, I did read also that all his businesses were conducted under his father's name. And that's how he could open the pizza place and this bar. But he did get done for pirating the sports video feed at the bar. He's just pure, evil, cheap, kineow for Thai people, kineow scum. Now, let's have an update on Brigitte Maria Beck. At the age of 78, she was living at 50 Aiken Street, Norwalk, Connecticut, when she passed away with her family posting, Brigida, having been in, but never really of this world, they, she left us on January 18, 2008. Now, Brigida, she was really lucky she had generous friends to help her out until the end. Okay, so <laughs> that's another crazy episode. Uh, <laughs> I guess we're so used to murders and stuff like this and people getting life sentences and all that sort of stuff. This guy got five years. And I think a lot of people will probably say, but he took all that money. He tried to stage his death. Five years. Is that really enough? And I don't think that's enough. I'm thinking for something like that, at least 10. And then it's more what he did to Brigitte in the end, not trying to rip off the insurance companies, but stealing everything she had. Not only that, but going back and bullshitting to her when he said, you know, he's supposed to be dead, keeping her confidence and still getting more money, getting the last of her money out of her. 
That's absolutely despicable. And Rennie, she was in it up to her neck as well. She only got a very light sentence, but then again, I suppose she filled in a lot of detail that the cops didn't have. Well, that's about it for this week. Okay, I'd like to thank my Patreons past, present and hopefully future for keeping the light on. And last week it was Elaine Fiorina. Special thanks to all my Patreons. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash Island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash Island. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases, just like Ruth did last week. We had a funny chat about that. Boomvakalunga, Ruthie. But can I just ask you to take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even Facebook groups, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and, as you know, commercial free. Best of all, it doesn't cost anyone anything to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use iTunes or a pod player. I have links to merch, social media, all that stuff. If you want to get in touch with me, you're quite welcome to email me. My email link's there as well. Now, we've got a promo this week from Tapes from the Dark Side. True Crime Deep Dives with a focus on the bizarre. Listen to their promo right at the end of the show. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfagalunga. Season 3 of Tapes from the Dark Side. Gilchrist County 911, what's the address of the emergency? Brings you a new tale of true crime. Yes, ma'am, I, I, um, I just shot my daughter and shot all my grandkids, and I'll be sitting on my step, and then when you sit here, I'm going to shoot myself. Tapes from the Dark Side is a serialized true crime podcast. Each season, we take one case and investigate in depth using original source audio and legal documentation to break down exactly what occurred, the potential motive behind each crime, and the judicial implications for those involved. This is Season 3, The Spirit Family Massacre. I think everyone has a bit of a fascination with the dark side.